Good afternoon. Thank you very much for coming to uh, Hudson Institute for what I know uh, is going to be a very interesting panel, and it's a very important panel. I also wanted to welcome our C-SPAN audience. Um, this panel is, uh, I've, I've been here now at Hudson uh, several years doing these panels, and I think that this is probably the most important panel that we'll be doing. We've had some terrific people in the past, and we will continue to have terrific <coughs> panelists, and this is a special panel, but I think that one of the things that this will do, especially <coughs> as it focuses on the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, I think that one of the things that this panel and this discussion uh, and these gentlemen will be able to do is to fill in, uh, is to give a very clear picture of what the Islamic Republic of Iran has done, uh, has done throughout the Middle East, especially to American servicemen and women, as well as American, uh, American citizens over the last 36 years. And so I think it's very important to have a clear understanding uh, exactly what this regime, uh, what this regime's past relationship with the United States has been like and what I think we should probably look for and expect uh, in the immediate future. So without further ado, I'm going to move to the panelists. Again, it's a really, uh, a really uh, special panel. Um, uh, General Jack Keane. Um, General Jack Keane is uh, 37 years uh, in the Army. His last post was as Chief of Staff uh, in the Army's now, uh, now on the board of the Institute for the Study of War. Um, and General Keane is also a commentator on Fox News. And I know that he's, uh, he, he, whenever I've had to do uh, an article, he's always been uh, available and helpful, very helpful and interesting source. Um, to my immediate left is um, uh, Mr. Derek Harvey. Uh, Mr. Harvey is now at the University of South Florida. He's also a, uh, a, uh, um, a military intelligence uh, senior executive uh, with the DIA. Is that Defense correct? Intelligence Defense Intelligence Agency before that, U.S. Army. Thank you. Uh, and then uh, all the way to the left is uh, Mike Pregent. And Mike has been here at Hudson before on other panels, so Mike is coming back. And um, Mike, among other things, was, uh, was a military intelligence analyst and uh, Army officer. And Mike right now is the executive director of a very important organization called Vets Against the Deal, and he'll be describing that a little bit. Uh, so without further ado, um, General Keene, if you could uh, start us off, please. Yeah, sure. Thanks. I appreciate being here. Nice of you to show up on a wonderful summer afternoon in Washington, D.C. They're not always like this, as we all are painfully aware of. <laughs> so en enjoy this great weekend. I hope it turns out to be the same. Um, I sit here with two distinguished colleagues, uh, both former Army officers, career officers. Um, I know Derek the best. Uh, we did assessments for Dave Petraeus in, um, in Iraq during 2007 and eight, every few months for weeks at a time. I did the same for him in, um, in Afghanistan. Uh, so we've had a lot of uh, interesting and unique experiences, to say the least. And I would, I would tell you that just to establish his credentials a little bit more, in 2004, Derek Harvey was the only intelligence officer in the government that understood what the origins of the insurgency in Iraq was, how they were executing it, and how, and how our strategy was doomed to failure. And that advice was provided uh, to the senior councils of, uh, of our government, but because there was an intelligence group think going on at the time, which I think many of you are familiar with and see it when it happens, his advice was summarily rejected. And how sad is that? 
because that was late 2004 when we had the actual truth of what was happening, why it was happening, and why our strategy was failing. Sad, sad stuff. So listen, that's a different subject today. Iran is, a, in my judgment, is an ideological-driven state subscribing to a radical Islamist ideology with significant geopolitical objectives, which they have not wavered or retreated from since the formation of the Islamic State of Iran in 1980. Specifically, their objectives are to seek regional domination, to reduce U.S. influence and drive the United States military out of the region, to destroy the State of Israel. For 35 years, to include this year, they have continued to espouse these objectives after using often using inflammatory language and always determined and consistent. Their strategy to achieve these geopolitical objectives is not only, in my judgment, capable and brilliant, but it is downright successful. <laughs> their execution arm for the strategy is the IRGC, the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps, or commonly referred to as the Quds Force, led for over 20 years by Qasim Soleimani, which is a hybrid of the Central Intelligence Agency, our Special Operation Forces, and overseeing engineering and science and financial entities to support their operations. Qasim Soleimani has only one boss, not the chief of the Iranian military and not the president of the country. The only boss he has, as you know, is the supreme leader. Their means to achieve their geopolitical objectives are proxy clients, fighting proxy wars, and proxy clients using terrorism. Let's just briefly consider what they have done to reduce the U.S. influence and drive the United States out of the region. By no way am I going to capsulize all of their activities in terms of what has happened in South America, Mexico, other places. I'm focused on one of their major strategic objectives to reduce U.S. influence in the region and to drive us out of the region. In the early 1980s, using the organization in Lebanon, which became known as the Hezbollah, they blew up the U.S. Embassy in 1983, 63 dead, 120 wounded. The U.S. Marine barracks that same year in Lebanon, 305 dead, 75 wounded. The U.S. Embassy in Kuwait, 5 dead, 86 wounded. And in 1984, they went back to the U.S. Embassy in Lebanon, which was now in the annex because the embassy itself had been destroyed, and we had 23 more dead killed in in that explosion, and countless other wounded. They began in the early 1980s a 10-year campaign to kidnap and assassinate U.S. and European government officials and civilians, resulting in the death of the CIA Station Chief Buckley and the United States trading arms for these hostages, putting in jeopardy the credibility of a president and, a, and his White House team. In 1996, they bombed the U.S. Air Force barracks and Cobar Towers in Saudi Arabia, 20 dead, 498 wounded. From 2004 to 2008 in Iraq, using two training bases in Iran, the Quds Force trained Iraq Shia militia under the guidance of Hezbollah battalion commanders and officers, developed an enhanced improved explosive device, or IED, to penetrate any known U.S. armor vehicle on the battlefield 
and to be used by their guidance exclusively against U.S. personnel, also providing rockets, mortars, and funding for the Iraq Shia militia. Estimated dead conservatively is over 1,000 as a result of that. If General Alston was here, who was the last four-star commander in Iraq, he believes it's closer to 2,000 U.S. dead. The United States of the 4,400 dead that we had in Iraq. The United States military did pull out of Lebanon and Saudi Arabia. And while the Iranian-trained Shia militias were defeated in Iraq by the U.S. and our allies and the Iraqis in 2008, by the way, that's the only defeat an Iranian proxy has ever suffered, the U.S. military did eventually leave Iraq, as we all know, in 2011. This 35-year track record of using proxies to kill Americans has not only succeeded, but no U.S. president, Republican or Democrat, has ever countered, despite full knowledge of who the sponsor is of the proxy clients. As to Israel, they directly or indirectly, through their surrogate Syria, substantially armed the Hezbollah in Lebanon and the Hamas in Gaza with missiles, rockets, and mortars. Indeed, Israel forces face then and now the most significant conventional missile and rocket threat that any country has ever faced. In 2006, Hezbollah and Israel clashed in a limited war with Qasim Soleimani and the Quds Force aiding the Hezbollah in Lebanon, while also, by the way, overseeing the Iranian-trained militia in Iraq, which was at the height of our violence in Iraq in 2006. By that time, in 2006, I may say in Iraq, the Iranian-trained Shia militia were the number one killer of U.S. personnel in Iraq. After weeks of struggle against the Hezbollah and the Quds Force in Lebanon, the Israeli Defense Force withdrew from Lebanon in the face of humiliation. All top Israeli four-star generals were fired, and to this day, Iran continues to arm and supply these two proxies, the Hezbollah and, it, and the Hamas, which continue to threat, threaten the existence of Israel. In Syria, after Assad used massive violence to clear the streets in 2011 as part of the so-called Arab Spring, many military leaders and soldiers from his regime joined the opposition, and indeed, the opposition gained momentum against the regime, so much so that many observers here and others were predicting the fall of the regime. Russia came to Syria's assistance, to be sure, but the decisive assistance came from Iran. Qasem Soleimani and the Quds Force on the ground. One of his two-star IGRC leaders was killed. They moved into Syria, 5,000 Hezbollah fighters out of Lebanon, and thousands of Iranian-trained Shia militia out of Iraq to help prop up the regime and prevent it from toppling. And that is exactly what happened. In Iraq, Qasem Soleimani and the Quds Force are all in in propping up the Abadi government, previously the Maliki government, while U.S. commitment in the eyes of senior Iraqi officials is inadequate. Now, it's also Yemen, with Qasem Soleimani and the Quds Force supporting the Houthis. This is a strategic issue, to be sure, for anybody that understands the Middle East, 
because an Iranian naval, ba naval base in Yemen can control the shipping lanes to and from the Suez Canal. And certainly that is what their intent is. The 35-year scorecard to date is control and influence over Lebanon, Syria, Gaza, Iraq, and Yemen. It is the height of naiveness and arrogance to assume that Iran will not build on this success and use the elements of the nuke deal to further their geopolitical objectives by enhancing their capabilities and the capabilities of their proxies. Specifically, they're going to receive a treasure of $150 billion in sanction relief money and certainly additional financial support as a result of the trading agreements that are currently being made in Iran with many European countries. They have the ability as a result of the deal to buy arms on the open market in five years and they have the ability to develop and acquire ballistic missiles in eight years. And the terrorist sanctions relief with Qasem Soleimani and other leaders of the Quds Force and certainly is a major facilitator of what will take place in the future. It is not so much about Qasem Soleimani and the Quds Force leaders' ability to travel. Let's face it, they travel where they want to, when they want to today. They travel covertly and clandestinely, just as our agents and Special Operations Force operatives do worldwide as well. The nuke deal, in my judgment, legitimizes this regime in terms of its ideology, not only inside Iran, but on the world stage. The, re the regime and the Quds Force will be emboldened by the deal. It is foolish to apply our values and desire for an Iranian accord to an assumption that Iran may in fact join the community of nations and abandon this strategy that is obviously working so well in achieving their strategic objectives. What we need, and just say it briefly, is a regional strategy with our allies and others who have a vested interest in the stability and security in the Middle East, and to work toward that as part of an alliance to counter the Iranians' hegemonic objectives and to counter also radical Islamic extremism. Thank you. General Keane, thank you very kindly. Um, you, you hit on a number of things that I'm going to want to come back to after, um, after uh, Mr. Harvey, Mr. Pregent's introductions. I mean, one of the things that I, one of the things that I find most astonishing, which I've thought about before, and I'm very happy you brought it up, is the fact that no administration, Democratic or Republican, has made the Iranians pay a price for their uh, malfeasance in the region. And I definitely want to come back to that, Mr. Harvey. If you can, um, if you can follow, thank you. Well, thank you very much to the Hudson Institute for having me here, and I'm indeed uh, glad to be here with my friends on the panel. Um, this is not a pleasant subject to talk about at all because the way the trends look as far as where this nuclear deal is going and what is actually in the deal. I've covered Iran for the better part of two and a half decades. I have uh, tracked and monitored and hunted uh, Codes Force operatives. I've interrogated Codes Force officers. I understand their operations and their intent behind them. I've also worked very hard on understanding the complexity of the leadership structures and the powerful influences within Tehran's leadership at the multiple levels, the different personalities, 
that are involved there, to understand the decision-making, the drivers, and how they see the world, and how they see their pathways to victory, if you will, how they want to advance their interests. I think it's very important that we have a clear-eyed understanding of who we're dealing with, why they think the way they do, and how they perceive moving forward and, and achieving their objectives. If we don't have a clear-eyed perspective on this, we're going to misread it. And I think, in some ways, we're misreading Iran today uh, because of a hope that we can move them to another place. Uh, this hopefulness and this misread reminds me in many ways of what we saw uh, in misreading Iraq and the nature and character of the regime, the structures that were in place there, the influence of tribal networks, and all of those things. It was misread at the time in 2002, 2003, and early 2004. And I think in some ways we're doing the same thing here. <coughs> My discussion today is not going to focus on the technical aspects of the Iran nuclear deal, uh, but rather parts of the agreement that are the most concerned to me and have been the most concerned to me from the very beginning. Uh, the implications of the accelerated relief of sanctions on arms sales, ballistic missile and warhead development, and on individual and business relief of designated sanctions. And on these concerns, Chairman Dempsey, the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, in testimony last month, reiterated those same concerns about ballistic missiles, arms sales, and individual and business sanctions being um, moved along and not being effectively uh, addressed in the deal. Um, he was most concerned about the ballistic missiles. I'm also very concerned about this misread of the nature and character of the regime and how the alignment of the hardline power blocks uh, are actually operating and how this deal is, in fact, I think, going to validate and legitimize what they've been doing over the last uh, couple of decades. This is success for them. They're going to get an infusion of resources, trade, and funds that will just bolster the regime and allow them, in, in some ways, to spend money on, on addressing consumer issues and the like. But fundamentally, it's going to empower the regime and give them military capabilities that are going to be detrimental to our interests and our allies' interests in the region. We don't have any real good evidence of the character and nature of this regime changing. Okay? There are some reformists. There are uh, people aligned that have been uh, part, were part of the Green Revolution, but they have been uh, assiduously attacked prison sentences and abuses by this authoritarian government to really suppress opposition. And just because people have been to Western schools, speak fluent English, are very comfortable in dealing with Americans yeah. and Western Europeans, does not mean that they do not have hardline ideological religious underpinnings that justify how they are performing and what they intend to do in leadership positions in that country. I think we, again, you know, are deceiving ourselves in, you know, projecting onto them things that, you know, are not there. And I've seen this time and time again in dealing with our senior leaders, be it Central Command, CENTCOM commanders who are engaged, or senior State Department officials, or others who see in others something that isn't there, just because they have a friendly relationship and they have the same background and they can talk to each other. It doesn't mean that these people are not fundamentally malign and focused on advancing an ideologically driven interest of their own. We've seen it in Pakistan, we've seen it with Saudi Arabia, we've seen it elsewhere. I th 
worry that a renewed and validated and better resourced Iran will just continue its hegemonic aspirations in the region. And they've been very effective at sowing disorder, taking advantage of their proximity, and using their asymmetric <coughs> capabilities to advance their interests. And they, as the general said, they work very effectively through their proxies. And before I move on, I, I'm going to hit on a couple of points that, I, that do concern me, but you know, we, we hear about snapback sanctions. You know, we can just you know, renew the sanctions if they violate the agreement. Um, what's the threshold for renewing those sanctions, and how long would it take to actually reimpose those sanctions? And when you look at this agreement closer, you see that there are really some very large holes that they can drive a truck through. Agreements that are made by the regime in Tehran struck today, in the future, up until sanctions are snapped back, those agreements continue. They are not affected by any <coughs> snapback of sanctions. So if you strike a deal to sell oil to Japan for the next 20 years, and you snap back sanctions in four years, that oil deal stays. It's not affected by this. It's that type of, of thing that we need to be looking at, because that is going to impact the judgment of Tehran's leadership as to how much risk they will take in skirting the edges or making a push for a major breakthrough in, in getting around this agreement. There's little evidence whatsoever that this agreement is going to moderate or you know, impinge upon their regional a ambitions. They have great capabilities already. They've had a history, as General Keene has laid out. They're going to continue to support their expansionism and sustain their clients in the region. There is no indication that they're not going to do that. The rhetoric is there. The actions are there. And we're going to have to be very vigilant and on guard. And what I've not heard from this administration, because we haven't seen it in the past, General Keene has pointed this out, no matter whether it was a Bush administration or the Obama administration, we've not dealt with the hard decision, the strategic decision about what to do about Iranian malign behavior. We never do counterpunch. That was one of the most frustrating things for Americans serving in Iraq. We had all the evidence, but we never did have a counterpunch. And Iranians understand that, our reluctance to really strike back. We should be deeply concerned about how Iran will spend the billions of dollars and the other trade benefits coming from this agreement. When you think about the windfall of resources, they've already declared that a new five-year plan for cyber, a new five-year plan for ballistic missile developments, and we say there's a five-year and an eight-year sunset on, on the current restrictions. I really don't see it in application or execution or that the members of the United Nations Security Council or the members from this agreement representing Europe, Russia, China, and the United States are going to push on any of these issues when Iran starts to violate them. Let's take a look at ballistic missile warhead development. I worked on NIEs dealing with ballistic missile developments, nuclear cooperation and ballistic missiles between North Korea and Iran back in the day. This agreement states explicitly that Iran can continue to make developments in warheads as long as they are not specifically designed for a nuclear weapon. How do you define that? There are all kinds of ways around that, and you can develop a warhead 
very effectively and do all the things you need to do and just explain variations and quali quality factors away in getting to that warhead development. So that's, that's a major concern. Why do you need an intercontinental ballistic missile or 5,000 mile range cruise missiles to deliver conventional munitions? They are only for one purpose, a nuclear weapon. That's the only reason. Now, people say it's only for deterrence. It's for their own defense. Well, this defense is, they point to Israel and Tel Aviv. But Rafsanjani and others in the past have been very clear to say, hey, you know, Israel's a one-bomb country. We've got 21 major cities. We've got strategic depth. And in an intra-war conflict <coughs> with Israel, Israel escalation possibilities affected by Iran's backing of Hamas and Hezbollah, it's going to impact Israel in ways that are not just about the strategic balance of, of nuclear deterrence and something we need to be concerned about. Again, my question is, what's the administration's policy and statement about what we're going to do in, about dealing with these other types of issues, dealing with Iran's behavior? Arms violations, ballistic missile developments, support to terrorism, and proxy warfare. Because their proxies are already setting targets on Bahrain and eastern Saudi Arabia. We see this in the social media coming out of the Shia proxies like Asib al-Haq and others in Iraq today. It's not just about Syria. It's not just about Lebanon. It's about elsewhere. And it's not going to stop at Yemen. They can purchase state-of-the-art mines, very sophisticated mines. Sophisticated torpedoes, land-based anti-ship missiles. These are qualitative improvements that are going to make U.S. operations highly vulnerable in the Persian Gulf, in the Arabian Sea. We're not even talking about the ballistic missiles or the cruise missiles. And at the end of this period, we're going to have a breakout because qualitatively, they're going to be able to be more sophisticated in the nuclear development. They're going to have a sunset clause. This agreement is term limited. Now, what are we going to have? Where's the U.S. declaratory policy that we will not accept a nuclear breakout by Iran at the 10-year mark, the 15-year mark, or beyond? I think that's something we actually need, okay? And I'll, I want to make one point about that. I think we need to declare that we will not allow them to enrich or develop weapons for the nuclear capabilities and make our intent straightforward and clear to all our allies in the region. And it needs to be unequivocal and a commitment by the United States President and backed up by the U.S. Congress that Iran will never be allowed to develop a nuclear weapon now or in the future. Their statement saying that they have no intent is insufficient. It needs to go beyond the 15-year mark. And I think this can reassure our allies, maybe help avoid some proliferation problems in the region, and ensure some clarity going into the future. We already see countries like Saudi Arabia pursuing nuclear <coughs> capabilities in terms of peaceful nuclear capabilities, looking for 16 nuclear power plants, for example, which is the beginning of a process that can lead to capabilities down the road. So with that, 
you know, these are some of the highlights that I'd like to address. I'd like to no, talk during terrific. the question yeah. and answer. Yeah. No, thanks. That's terrific, Mr. Harvey. Uh, and one of the things I wanted to come, I mean, it was very interesting. You're talking about the, <clears throat> the idea of mirror imaging, how uh, our leadership, both military and civilian, sometimes imagines that our uh, adversaries are something other than what they are. And as someone who is interrogated could force officers, that's definitely something I want to come back and, uh, and, and talk to you about uh, further. Uh, Mr. Pregen, if you would, uh, if, if you would uh, continue, please. Well, thanks for having me. It's, it's an honor to be on stage with both of you who are probably wondering what you're doing on stage with me. But uh, <laughs> it's a great opportunity. I've worked with, for, for Derek uh, since 2006. He gave me some great opportunities in Iraq. And so I served with you in the 101st Airborne Division, also the 82nd Airborne Division. So it's an honor for me to be on this panel. I'm uh, currently the Executive Director of Veterans Against the Deal. And what we, what we have done is uh, we've formed this organization based on the President's speech at the, the American University, where he said that if anybody is against this, you're either a warmonger, you're an ideologue, or you're illogical. Well, we didn't really take offense to that. We just simply had a very simple argument. The military veterans are the last people that <laughs> want to go to war. The military trains to prevent wars and trains to win wars. So we put together a group <laughs> relatively quickly. Uh, former director of DIA, Mike Flynn, is on our advisory board. And we got some great Americans on this, on this, in this organization going back to 1979. We have, uh, we have a, a Marine who was, who was a hostage whose sister lost her husband in the Beirut bombing. And we simply want Americans to remember who this enemy is because over the last 35 years, there's not been a moderating event that has warranted this tilt towards Iran. There's not been one single event that warrants this pivot towards Iran, in my opinion. So what we're doing is we want to present politicians a fact-based argument on what this deal actually does and how it actually accelerates what the Quds Force is already doing. And we believe we have a, a very principled argument, because even supporters of the deal cannot understand why Qasem Soleimani was delisted. Qasem Soleimani is the commander of Quds Force. Like, like the general said, it is an external operating force designed to spread the Islamic Revolution through terrorism. And when I call Qasem Soleimani a terrorist general, I'm asked, why do you call him a terrorist general? And I said, well, U.S. Uh, Treasury designates him as a terrorist, and his rank is general. The terrorist general, Qasem Soleimani. And he's out there uh, violating sanctions. So, we, so the argument goes, you know, we have sanctions on Soleimani already. Well, he's not taking them very seriously. He's been leading a proxy war in Baghdad, keeping Assad in power in Damascus. He's been in Beirut working with Hezbollah, and he's been in Yemen working with the Houthis. So he's supporting Hamas, Hezbollah, and the Houthis, and that's just the H's. Okay? And I stole that from the Senate Intelligence Hearing, so please forgive me for that, but I think it's a great point. So Qasem Soleimani's been doing this. Um, the Quds Force, you can't argue that uh, if it gets more money, if it gets the ability to buy advanced weapons, and if its charismatic general is able to travel freely, that it doesn't help this organization continue to spread Iran's, Iran's terrorist uh, strategy to export it through these proxies. So that, that's one argument. But what we have looked, we've looked extensively at the, the JCPOA. And what, we've, what we want you to know, or we want, we want to put out there, is that we have to, to look at this from Iran's perspective. Iran's, Iran's um, 
translation or Iran's view of the Iran deal is much different than ours. They believe on implementation day in January 2016 that all sanctions will be relieved, will be removed. So when we come back and say, no, no, we still have the uh, other sanctions in place, Iran doesn't believe that because nothing's been stopped to stop them from supporting terrorism the last five years with, with the groups that we mentioned earlier. I won't go back into those details. So when you, when you delist individuals and the Quds forces, I, I don't know what the Quds force has to do with the nuclear program. Does anybody here? I don't know what they have to do with the, Quds, with the nuclear program. Yet they were delisted in the non-nuclear component of the JCPOA. So we went in and saw who else was, or found, you know, looked to see who else was delisted, and we found 13 generals delisted that were actually put on sanctions to begin with because they were part of an illicit program to acquire materials for a militarized nuclear weapon. They were put on sanctions. They've all been delisted. The banks that actually helped them get these materials have been delisted as well. And the general mentioned shipping lanes. The shipping lanes have been so important to this regime over the last 36 years to export weapons to Hezbollah, Hamas, and now we're seeing them do the same thing with the Houthis. The ships that have been doing that have been delisted. The ships that were sanctioned to begin with for trying to procure uh, military materials uh, from North Korea have also been delisted. What that means is these companies now can continue to, to, to help Iran export their, their terrorism or export their their strategy to, to spread the revolution. Iran doesn't believe the sanctions are lifted in the future. They're already doing this now. And when we hear the arguments, uh, there's some really great arguments being made by, by the administration. And there's a, there's a video out there countering vets against the deal. And it has three veterans saying, we concede that Iran will use the money to export terrorism. We concede that Iran will use the money to buy advanced weapons. We concede that you cannot trust this regime. We concede that if it actually doesn't cheat, it gets a bomb in 15 years, if not sooner. And that's why you need to support the Iran deal, which makes no sense. It's a, it's a debate tactic that you use your freshman year of college. Concede the points of your adversary and then tell them they're wrong and you're right. So we, we really want to sit here and basically deconstruct these arguments with, with facts. So we've secured meetings with three Democrat senators. I'm not going to mention their names so they don't cancel on us because it's next week. And what we're going to do is we're going to simply give them a list of 10 individuals on the non-nuclear side, 10 entities, and 10 generals on the nuclear side that should, that if you truly want to ensure Iran does not become a nuclear power, the last thing you want to do is give these guys freedom of movement, give them money, and the ability to go after these assets. And we know how weak this deal is because any concessions, any amendments made by, by, by our president will kill the deal. Any change to this deal kills it. That's how weak, the, weak it is. And the only enforcement tool is to kill it with snapback sanctions that, like you said, have been insulated by these 20- and 30-year contracts. So just looking at that, you get asked the question, so what's a better deal? A better deal is automatically putting these 10 guys back on sanctions, putting these five companies back on sanctions, putting these five shipping companies back on sanctions, putting these three IRGC-owned banks that have been... Uh, responsible for funding, again, Hezbollah, Kitab Hezbollah, Asab Ahl al-Haq, the Promised Day Brigades from Jaysh al-Mehdi, um, and, and Hamas, and also helping out uh, Assad's forces directly. The, the thing about this, 
this deal is, a lot of people say that the, well, the money's going to go back to the Iranian people. Well, the money was sanctioned to begin with because it was already involved in terrorist activity. The money was sanctioned to begin with because it was already involved in the procurement of military materials that would lead to a nuclear capability. So it's not going to go back to the people. And every former IRGC commander or every former IRGC general is still a member of the club. And each one of them has its hands in every sector of the Iranian economy. So those are the things we're looking at. Now, we believe supporters and opponents of this deal can simply look at the individuals we're going to present and say, we can't, we can't do this. this. This doesn't feel right. Mr. President, I can vote for this deal, but these five people have to come off. We know that if those five people come off, the deal is killed. So we talk about, well, this is a way to moderate Iran, <coughs> and hopefully, you know, if they do these things, or if we do these things, they'll, they'll moderate. And the people will, 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 will look for peaceful regime change. Well, that's not facilitated at all when you actually delist the man responsible for putting down the 2009 Green Revolution. The besieged commander somehow found his way on this nuclear deal. He has nothing to do with the nuclear component. Justin, Amir, and Saeed sit in prison in Iran because they were not part of the nuclear deal. We could not negotiate to get them out because they weren't part of the nuclear component of this thing. Qasem Soleimani, delisted. A besieged commander, delisted. Shipping companies responsible for spreading Iran's terrorism throughout the region, delisted. Hezbollah banks, delisted. So we simply want to provide decision makers a fact-based brief that we believe even supporters of this deal can say, okay, there were too many concessions on this side. If those things, goes away, if those things go away, it automatically becomes a better deal, and it also kills it because Iran will look at any change as a breach. And one of the biggest problems we have in the last 10 days is the, you know, Qasem Soleimani traveling to Moscow. So you have two signatories on the JCPOA, Russia and China, two guarantors that are supposed to help us keep Iran in check, facilitating sanctions uh, violations, facilitating the procurement of S-300s. A battery of S-300s can shoot down an Israeli airstrike. They'll have to have five aircraft in order to be able to do it. It'll be able to shoot down four. The S-400 can shoot down American aircraft. So we, we're keeping an eye to see whether or not the S-400 comes into play. But when you have two guarantors already <laughs> promising Iran the advanced fighter jets from, from China for, the, for oil rights now and the ability to shoot down American aircraft and Israeli aircraft being provided by a signator, that's happening now. That's not, that's not in the future. This organization has former CIA officers, former NSA officers, former DIA officers. We have veterans across the services, soldiers, NCOs, and officers. And before the list came out with 180 generals that, would, um, that, that are against this, the White House was touting its 36 generals that supported the deal. I'd be happy to put three of my soldiers against those 36 generals, armed with facts, to be able to simply say that non-nuclear concessions on this side of the House will kill this deal. And I... We, are, I don't, we don't want to get lost in, I don't want to call it the noise, but we, we know 24-7 isn't 24-7. 24-7 is 24 days, and hopefully seven weeks after that we'll get something. We, we don't want to get lo lost in the uh, numbers of centrifuges or the percentage of enriched uranium. Those arguments are being made with facts, which is great. We want to be able to say, over the last 36 years, Iran has, Iran is, and Iran will, and juxtapose that against our supporters of this deal that say, Iran may, Iran could, 
Iran should. We hope Iran does. This is not, method is not, you know, hope is not a method. That's a, that's a military term we, we always hear. We have a fact-based argument against this deal because it does nothing but give them a nuclear weapon in 15 years if they don't cheat. If they cheat, they get one in a year. But right now, it gives them anywhere from 56 to $150 billion that will go back in. And again, another talking point. Well, the Gulf Cooperation Council spends eight times more than Iran spends on its defense. The difference is the GCC will buy an F-15 or an F-16 for $156 million. The Quds Force pays Hezbollah $200 million a year. You tell me which one's more effective, a terrorist army or an aircraft that they don't want to fly at night or an aircraft that they won't fly in the daytime. So Hezbollah, $200 million a year. Assab al-Hawak gets $5 million a month to continue its terrorist operations. Qatab Hezbollah, roughly the same. So when you, when you talk about what Iran stands to gain, Iran's, the IRGC's budget is set to double, if not triple. And I would put the argument out there. What would ISIS be able to do if its budget doubled or tripled? There's not, there's not a, a supporter of this deal that wouldn't say that they'd be able to do more. And we know IRGC will be able to do more if their budget is doubled, if not tripled, if they're able to buy advanced weapons. Now, advanced weapon in this theater is, is a shoulder-fired rocket able to shoot down U.S. transport aircraft resupplying our bases. That's what an advanced weapon is here. That's something they're not allowed to buy right now. But Russia's already facilitating that. So there are things that they're going to be able to get now. There are things they're going to be able to get. There are things they're getting now they're not supposed to get for five years. There's things they're doing now they're not supposed to be able to do for eight years. And they're one year away from the weapon if they cheat and 15 years away if they don't. But in the meantime, they become one of the strongest military powers in the Middle East and an ability to, to continue its uh, hegemonic goals in the region. That's, that's what I have. Mike, thanks very much. Thank that, you. That's terrific. Um, and if you do look at the G JCPOA, I, I don't necessarily recommend that everyone have to read it, but if you do look at different people who have, uh, <coughs> who have been taken off of or will, will have UN sanctions uh, lifted uh, and the EU sanctions lifted, it's, it's astonishing some of the people. I mean, the Iranians uh, essentially petitioned for everyone. Uh, a Lebanese national named uh, Anis Nakash, who was a deputy of Carlos the Jackal, somehow the Iranians got him off the list as well. Uh, and somehow the, uh, the White House negotiating team accepted this, made a deal over this. Um, what I want to come back to right now, I do want to ask this question. I mean, General, you were, uh, you were there. You served, in both Demo you served both Democratic and Republic <coughs> Republican White Houses. Why did, um, why did we never do anything about the Iranians? I mean, we saw what they've been doing since 1979, and every administration has had, has had problems with the Islamic Republic. Why, why didn't we do anything? Yeah, I mean, it's a great question, and, and I think one we've always asked ourselves many times, and I, I think there is an answer for it. Um, it, it. First of all, any executive decision dealing in a policy area like this is complicated, to say the least, and you have um, imperfect information, and you have a lot of options which are not particularly sanguine or satisfactory to you. So that's, that's normal. I'm not talking about how to get past the transportation bill. I'm dealing with national security options that impact global stability and impact American lives. So that's, that's a given. Democratic or Republican president, you know, they all have, when they take power, all have huge domestic agendas. It's the basis for their election by and large. 
but the global security situation has a way, has a way of coming to the door of every president of the United States, whether they welcome that or not, it's there. So the psychological aspect of this is at play. What the Iranians crafted a strategy that gives a president deniability. And that's, hmm. that's what's, why this has sat in the inbox of one president wow. after another. There's not a serving president that didn't know that Hezbollah, sponsored by the Iranians, killed our Marines and blew up our embassy in the early 80s. Every president knew that. And then again, Cobar <clears throat> Tower. And every president serving at that time and after knew that. But no one acted. And I think that's part of it. Putin understands the psychological aspect of this decision-making, and he's using it to his advantage. The confrontation that he's using, to use our words, is a hybrid strategy where he doesn't confront the Ukrainians in Kiev with direct-line military forces. He goes in and stirs up unrest where there wasn't any, creates a reason for him to bring in special operations forces to support it, and then, when necessary, brings in conventional military, not in uniform, to drive domination over what is now a response from the host country's military. He could take Kiev in two weeks, if he wanted to, using his conventional military. But he doesn't want that burden. But he wants to control and influence, and I really think he's, he's, he's seeking the destruction of NATO eventually. So he understands this. It gives what? It, it gives European leaders and it gives a president pause and deniability. That's fascinating. I'm sorry. So you're saying that a lot of the times our adversaries, their own strategy is keyed to our decision-making process? I, I think, I don't think, met, met, I think in Putin's case it absolutely is true because he trained KGB colonel who is a master at psychological warfare. I think in his case it is. I think in the Iranians' case, I think strategically, it was a strategy that made the most sense for them to avoid direct confrontation and knowing America and knowing we were the principal uh, protagonists that they were after, that I think they, they, they thought this would had a chance to work. I, I think it succeeded beyond their imagination, for crying out loud. I mean, one of, the things, uh, um, one of the things that I think strikes many observers is that... Um, and the president has said, President Obama has said, and I think he's correct, of course, the Islamic Republic is not the Soviet Union. And so I think that some, I think there are two different ways to look at that. One is, yeah, so we can take them down anytime we need to. Uh, if we have to, they're not that big a problem. But the other thing is they kind of come in under the radar for, I think, the reasons you're describing. They act, they act under the radar. Well, yeah, they're not the Soviet Union because they've gone out and they've killed thousands of Americans. And, uh, and taken uh, countless number of Americans hostage. Uh, that's true, they're not the Soviet Union. They've been killing us for 35 years, and the Soviet Union doesn't have a track record of that. Uh, be frank about it. Uh, and, and that model is sort of used that, you know, here we had uh, two ideologies that were struggling, and we were able to talk and negotiate, uh, you know, with them. Therefore, we should be able to talk and negotiate with the Iranians. I have no problem talking and negotiating with the Iranians, but you do it from a position of strength and 35 years of history has got to be on the table. And as a result of any deal, we want, we want this behavior that I just laid out, should be laid out in front of them and said, this, this is job one. We'll discuss nuclear weapons to be sure and how to curb that behavior, 
which is designed to preserve the regime, but we're going to, as part of our negotiations, we're going to curb this behavior, which is their number one strategic objective, not a nuclear weapon, which is domination of the region. And that was never on the table. Mr. Hummer, you were going to... I've sat in far too many secure video conferences with senior leadership in Washington, D.C., sitting in Baghdad or in Kabul, where we have discussed how to respond to the assassination of five Americans, planned and conducted with the support of the Codes Force in the case of Iraq, or dealing with Pakistan intelligence service support to the Taliban and their direct involvement in supporting the killing of Americans. And when it comes to looking at a response, a proportional response, it seems like the debate always becomes one of extreme caution because there is an, a high level of concern about what our adversary may do in response. So we take many, many, many cards off the table. We decide not to use coercive power to respond because leaders are afraid, in my view, sitting there, about what the response is. Not thinking about how to use American power, economic, diplomatic, military, clandestine, or overt, to make the cost higher than they are willing to pay. If they want to respond, one could say, fine, if you respond, but we've got the trump card. But we are embarrassed by our superpower status, is what I see far too often in dealing with my friends in the interagency that are involved in these deputies and principals meetings. And caution becomes the dominant theme. Let's not create something that we don't want to get involved in. It's inconvenient, and let's just, let's send 400 more trainers, and we're going to deal with ISIS. Let's do this. And we just inoculate by doing something that is not germane, and our enemies see this. Can I ask Mr. Our enemies see this. Right. What's the response that our, um, our decision makers fear most? Is it, is it uh, terror attacks in the United States, which is certainly a possibility? Is it terror attacks uh, against, against U.S. forces uh, in the region? What, what's the response that, that prevents, uh, prevents our, our decision makers from saying, yes, definitely take a piece of the IRGC. We're sick and tired of this. <coughs> What, what, are they, what are they most fear? It's mainly been about terrorist strikes, asymmetric strikes in the region, hitting American service facilities or corporate entities, just American symbolic targets that is a tit-for-tat type of thing. You know, what we're really saying is we're talking about leadership here and, and the response to these, these kind of challenges. And you've you got to have some kind of moral compass to, to deal with these life and death situations that sort of drive in you to, to make these, these appropriate decisions. I mean, you look at the presidents that were involved in this, I mean, some of these presidents are very good people, I mean, obviously. <coughs> and, and, uh, but nonetheless, they, they were handcuffed uh, by something of, of what Derek is saying. And, I, and I, I'm comfortable that they, if they had an opportunity to revisit it, they probably would have made you know, some, difficult to, some different decisions. I mean, I hearken back. Um, to the European leadership that existed uh, when Nazism rose and it wasn't that difficult a problem initially to deal with. You know, Henry, uh, 
Churchill was asked a question about the calamity of World War II, 100 million people being killed during that, during that war, and what a horrible calamity that is. And he, he certainly acknowledged that. He said, yes, but it was also our most preventable war. And that was dealing at, at, at the time with one leader, one ideology before it grew into uh, domination of, uh, of other, other countries. Margaret Thatcher sees Saddam Hussein drive into Kuwait with the ultimate objective, Saudi Arabia. The president is wavering as is the White House because, of, okay, we do something about this, what's the next step to take a page out of what Derek is saying? She said there's a moral imperative here. We have to act. This cannot stand. And then he actually started to use those words that she provided him, and she gave him the imperative to, uh, to take, that, that, take that kind of action. This requires you know, some strong leadership in, in terms of dealing with it and recognizing you know, strategically, what really is at stake here and the implications of tolerating this kind of behavior uh, over time. And well, if I may, sure, may say please. something here, I, I mentioned about misreading who we're dealing with and understanding who we're dealing with, I think, in clear terms. You know, we're, we're dealing with a regime leadership in Iran, the codes forth with Soleimani, who have been in these jobs, these same jobs for decades. Mm -hmm. And they have credibility in the region. They have proximity. They have national interest. They have an ideological driven factor there. They have committed political leadership. And they are ruthless about achieving <coughs> their objectives. I don't see that on our side. And if you're over in that region, you see this with the Iranians, so you have to deal with it. Now, we seem to think <coughs> that the pathway to success here, sir, is that we're going to have this arms control agreement, and this will set the stage for an evolution in the relationship, call it detente, where we're going to reset the relationship, and Iran will become, over time, a moderate, constructive player in the region, in the international nation-state system. And that we're interlocking, interchanging with people that are highly educated, PhDs from Western universities, who understand our national security system and our processes better than many of our own people do, because they've studied it at length. And that's who we're engaged with. And in many ways, you know, what I'm afraid of is that our engagement, our negotiations, mm. our calculations don't appreciate how ruthless and calculating and the types of decisions these people have taken time and again to put people in prison, to torture, to assassinate, to conduct bombings that kill 244 people, or to support a Kobar bombing. And this is who we're dealing with. Now, maybe the regime can change. I'm hopeful. You want to deal with your adversary, and you want to get to a good point. I'm just not sure that this deal, as currently constructed, provides us that pathway. Mike, did you want you to? Have, you have three countries who have consistent strategic, consistent strategic messages over the last 30 years. Iran, China, and Russia. Russia being roughly about 27 years. Dealing with an administration that leaves office in 17 months. Uh, these three countries have a playbook. They know what they wanted to get, and they were able to get it. Can you, um, can you just describe sure. Iran's a little more closely? It's very, it's very interesting. If you can just, you know. Oh, sure. I mean, <clears throat> you're looking at the same, the same consistent uh, policies and ideology coming out of Iran the last 36 years. Same coming out of Russia the last, what, 27 years? Since 1990? And also uh, 
the same in, the same in China. So you have our, our foreign policy in the Middle East ebbs and flows. So our adversaries take advantage of it based on who's in office. The next administration that comes in will have to deal with, with this actual, uh, with the JCPOA, the Iran deal. If it's a Republican administration, it's not going to be too happy about it. Um, we're hearing in our circles that neither, neither Hillary or Biden want to run on this thing because they don't want it around their necks going, going towards the election because it's, it's that bad. But you have an advantage when you're an adversary dealing with an administration that's leaving office in 17 months. So when the president says Iran will never get a bomb on my watch ad in 17 months, you know, it's that simple. It's, we don't have a consistent ideology. We, ha we have been flow. We can always consistently say that we support the state of Israel. Some administrations use all five lanes of a superhighway to support Israel. Some administrations use the access road. Some administrations use all five lanes uh, to use, uh, you know, when we talk about Russia, when we talk about the U.S., and we talk, the comparisons are made, you know, when we engage with Russia. We engage with Russia like this, two military forces pushed up against each other in, in the fold of gap. We increased our military presence. The military option was on the table. Even Joss Ernest, a press secretary, mentioning the military option in a press conference, uh, you heard protests in Tehran saying the U.S. is already violating the JCPOA. From a, because of a press secretary actually mentioned it uh, in an answer to a reporter. But you're able to take advantage of, 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 of administration leaving office in 17 months when you have the same countries that have been doing this for 30 years consistently. Well, well let me, I mean, that raises a very interesting point. So they do have a very consistent uh, ideology. But we do have, we've had since uh, 1944, we've had a position in the Persian Gulf, which has been very important. And General Keene, I guess, uh, if I can ask you, I know that uh, I believe that you were the chief operating officer for the uh, for the Pentagon, um, which means you saw firsthand how important the Persian Gulf is for a number of different reasons. So, what does it mean right now that uh, that our position in the Persian Gulf is is somewhat jeopardized? It seems. Well, it, it's indisputable. Multiple presidents have, have recognized that the Middle East, Persian Gulf is in U.S. vital interests and, and the implications there for long-term uh, national security interests as well. So that, that's been given in a Democratic and a Republican administration. It's been a constant uh, all of these years. And, and we have seen a, a major strategic shift in power in the region at, in favor of Iran at the expense of our allied relationships and at the expense of those interests. It's undeniable. It's not disputable. And we, we just laid it out, the, uh, the new alliances that are there and the domination and control that's taken place with Iran, Lebanon, Syria, Iraq, and, uh, and also Yemen, and what its interests are in, in the other Gulf states. They are dead serious about dominating that region, and they are well on their way to achieving that fact. And, and they started in 1980, and in 35 years, if you're keeping a scorecard in Iran, you're feeling pretty good about what you've done, just checking the box. And you've got other boxes that you're going to check eventually, and you've got more money to do it and a strategy to do it, and a relatively impotent United States and European leadership that will tolerate it. So that, I think, is the issue. And it always has been the issue. I mean, I've always looked at the Middle East. Radical Islamic extremism is clearly an issue that's Sunni-based. But when, when you look at the Middle East strategically, you should, I think, our national security leaders should always look at every policy decision we're making in terms of what its implication is dealing with Iran. Mm. Much as we did with the Soviet Union for years. 
And this is an area of vital interest to the United States, but we frankly do not do that. And we paid a hell of a price for it. Mr. Harvey, you were going to... I was, I was going to say that what I hear from, from folks in the administration is that you know, we need to deal with Iran. It's a republic. It has a parliament. It has elected officials. We need to help them navigate their way forward. We can't have this era of confrontation. That there are voices that are there that if we engage and we help them open up, it'll provide opportunities for those people that do not have a voice. That, you know, the political evolution will occur, but we need to be patient. It's going to be working like detente. It might take 10, might take 20 years, and we need to be patient and we need to take the slings and arrows and not overreact to Americans getting killed, to the next bombing, and don't expect us to respond when there are provocations or there are violations because the deal itself and the course we're on to try and bring Iran into the fold is more important than responding to hardliners that might try to, in their view, undermine this agreement by conducting an operation somewhere down the line or they get caught with their hands in the cookie jar you know, with, with some of these other issues of, of getting around sanctions now rather than waiting for the fifth year or the eighth year or the tenth year. So that's the mindset we're dealing with, that there are reformists there. They point in people in positions, and I go, do you know who these people really are? And these reformists don't have any real power. They're, you know, they're in positions, but they don't really wield it. Take a look at the Council of Guardians, the Council of Experts. Take a look at who controls the military structure and the economic levers. When you start to see real changes there, maybe you'll see a crack. Well, it's going to take time, Derek. It's going to take time. Well, we're risking a lot, so we're going to have to be vigilant. And I don't hear anything that's articulated about what we're prepared to do between now and then when we get to this point about checking the behavior, about having a deterrent, having a coercive option, because I think all of our economic cards are, are not viable. There aren't going to be any effective snapback sanctions. The economic issues that we've usually relied on aren't going to be there in the toolbox for us to use. So this makes it more likely that if you're going to have a response, it's going to have to be military, <coughs> in, my, in my judgment, or no response at all. And I think with this administration and maybe some subsequent administrations, the option will be, well, we'll just excuse things away and they'll violate and they'll violate and they'll violate and we'll just live with it. Well, you were talking about how um, administration figures seem to be hopeful that the regime will moderate. One of the things that concerns me, and I think there is some evidence that actually the administration is happy to work with the hardliners. Um, we have some indication, I think, in lots of ways, a nuclear deal, since it is the IRGC that controls the nuclear file, in many ways that will lock in the hardliners. And there was a story in uh, foreign policy a couple of months ago after the, uh, after the Arab officials were invited to meet with the president to Camp David. Uh, John Hanna did a piece for F, uh, foreign policy where there were Arab officials who were describing how the president seems to admire certain things about Qasem Soleimani certain things about the could force and he was telling the Arabs that like they're actually pretty competent you guys could use something like that so I guess one of the things I wanted to ask you is uh, who is 
I mean, we know who Qasem Soleimani is, but what's in his head, first of all, uh, and is he winning in the region? So if, if you can ask that, uh, answer that, and then, Mike, I, I would ask you to talk well, about that for a second, too. One is the Iranian state, the state apparatus, their institutions are effective and they're very good. And they've got a tremendous amount of intellectual capital that is brilliant and sophisticated, not just for the nuclear programs, but in other areas of the economy. And they're an industrious people. And they've got very good culture, literature, art, movies, film. This is a rich, textured, complex, sophisticated <laughs> society. And all of those things make it actually <coughs> more dangerous, okay? Because it has institutional capacity, <coughs> the ability to align its resources and to get the most out of them. I think that is one of the things that, um, that impresses the administration. They talk of it as a real regime, rational, pursuits interest, uh, contrasting it in some ways to our Gulf Arab allies. So yes, I certainly think that is one of the things that impresses yeah. the White House. Um, Mike, did you want to? Yeah, definitely. Um, so, so this admiration for, for Soleimani has mani manifested itself in a uh, Voice of Europe puff piece on Soleimani. Uh, the U.S. Sends oh, the you mean the Radio Free Europe? Piece right, Radio Free Europe. Yes. Yeah, so we send them two hundred eleven million dollars, and they put out a piece uh, saying that Soleimani is actually a, a pretty nice guy. Well, I'm sure a lot of people think Dick Cheney is a pretty nice guy, or <laughs> think thought that Osama bin Laden was a pretty nice guy, but. Not to make any comparisons, wait, just trying to, try to, try to be on both sides here. Wow, I don't know. Just trying to be on both sides here. But I reject you mentioning the vice president mm -hmm. in that context. Yes. Yeah. I actually okay. respect him, but I don't want to be, uh, what do you call it, uh, marginalized. <laughs> Let's see. So anyway, back to Soleimani. Is he winning? Uh, Soleimani, uh, presence in Iraq used to be wake-up criteria for an American president. It used to be a get-out-of-bed, Soleimani's in Iraq, what are we going to do? Now he's doing selfies. He's doing selfies in Iraq after leading <laughs> victory parades in Amrli and Jafal Sukkur. He led the forces into Crete. So all under sanctions, by the way, before the JCPOA was even, even, even uh, voted on. So he basically has been leading forces on the ground with U.S. close air support in the air, being able to provide air support to Soleimani's forces. And we say, well, you can't say that. Uh, Qasem Soleimani's not controlling these things. Well... Hadi al-Amri is controlling those things, and he controls the Hashid al-Shabi, and, and Amri is basically said he works for Qasem Soleimani. Qasem Soleimani was put in charge of its Crete operations, using two designated terrorist organizations to conduct operations, expelling Sunnis from these areas. Both sanctions violations. No, Soleimani on the ground in Iraq is not supposed to be able to travel. Leading designated terrorist organizations in the fight against ISIS. Now, let me caveat that. The fight against Sunnis opposed to the Iraqi government. That's a, that's a bigger deal than ISIS. So this was a clear and hold strategy. Clear Sunnis out, <coughs> hold the area so they can't come back in. And then this, uh, this blanket uh, labeling of Sunnis as collaborators simply because there's no Iraqi security forces to turn to to protect them. This is a Qasem Soleimani in Iraq has not, has not built a force to take back Mosul has not built a force to take back Ramadi or Fallujah. So he is definitely winning in Iraq. Uh, he has made Baghdad more dependent on Tehran than they were a year and a half ago. He's out in the open, working directly with uh, Mohandas from Kitab Hezbollah, designated terrorist, by the way, and the bank that directly funds his organization was also delisted. And 
not to mention what he was doing in Syria and these other places. So he is winning, and now you just gave him more money, and now we just gave him the ability to buy advanced weapons, and he can't help but smile. And, and this may, so. in fact, prolong the Syrian campaign, this infusion mm -hmm. of cash into the, the Iranian uh, coffers, because they have provided tremendous financial support to underpin the Assad regime. Qasem Soleimani has directed and coordinated the strategy across the region, uh, orchestrating involvement from Hezbollah in Syria, sponsoring Iraqi Shia militias in Syria. He's directly behind the bombings, the barrel bombings of refugee centers, of the destruction of bakeries and food centers in Syria in order to impact the population. He's conducted in numerous human rights violations under his organization and under his direction and tutelage. And this is occurring in Iraq. You have ethnic cleansing, you have assassinations, you have torture, all this at the behest and guidance of Soleimani. And these are the types of people that apparently some Americans believe we're going to be able to deal with and we admire. You know, the president of Iran and the military, the conventional military of Iran is not involved in the strategic geopolitical objectives of Iran, which is to dominate the region. That is the province of two leaders. One is the supreme leader, and the second is Qasim Soleimani, who is his execution arm exclusively. The rest of the leadership is not involved in any of that. And that is the, the simple way to understand what is, what is truly taking place. So given the scorecard that has been achieved, as I mentioned before, it's indisputable that they've had a significant measure of success. And, he, and the two of them enjoy that success. Uh, General, I can ask you, you were speaking before about the, <clears throat> the sort of moral core that leadership requires and the different things that uh, Churchill understood and that um, Margaret Thatcher understood as well, where they could see which way things were tending. If I can ask you, which way do you think this is tending? Where do you think this is going? What do you think it means for the region? What do you think it means for, uh, for the United States and, and our allies as well? Well, I think American leadership by and large is been passive and disengaging from the region, and as a result of that, it's endangered our interests, it's endangered <coughs> our allies, it's, it, it has emboldened our adversaries. Um, certainly <coughs> Russia and China are, are considerably more adventurous, I think, is what they perceive to be. What is somewhat new to them is weak American leadership to the degree that it is. They, the Europeans haven't been capable of asking their people to suffer in terms of national security for close to 30 years. Uh, so they've, they've understood about the European feckless leadership. I'm talking about our adversaries. But I think what is new to them is, is the degree that American leadership has stepped back. And they are clearly taking advantage of it. I'm not hopeless about this issue mm -hmm. uh, because I think we have, we've been here before many times where American leadership is a defining experience for this great country of ours. We started out with a leader who understood what he wanted, and he, he, um, he was fighting a conventional military that was the best in the world. And it took him seven years, but he eventually beat it back. I'm talking about the founder of our country. We had a, a president during 
the Civil War, they couldn't find a general to fight the war competently. And his leaders were willing to, came to him, his close leaders came to him and said, look it, we have got to make an accommodation with the Jefferson Davis government. We've got to, to establish some, some, some kind of accord now on terms that are somewhat favorable to us, given the way the war is going. He would have none of it, none of it, because he knew that was the destruction of the United States as we knew it and every principle that we had in this country as a result of it. And he finally found a guy that could do something with it. Roosevelt and Truman during World War II, <coughs> the decisions that they made were extraordinary, and they were extraordinary leaders for making it. It had nothing to do with party. I mean, Roosevelt makes the decision watching Nazism, and he decides, in conjunction with Churchill, that it's not going to be sufficient, having fought two world wars and the calamity of World War II against this ideological leader that it's not going to be sufficient to defeat their military, even to defeat their Nazi, Nazi regime. That the only way to prevent this from happening again is to defeat the German people. What, now, what a decision that was. And that resulted in millions of civilian deaths. And Germany today is what? A rising, a, a flourishing economy, a democratic base, basic society, and war is, is something not even on the horizon. And, and Truman made a similar decision dealing with, with what he was facing in Japan. He had a weapon that would bring the war to an end. He knew what the cost would be to invade the island of Japan, having watched all the island hopping that took place in a ferocious way these people had fought. The casualties were, were rising, and he made a very difficult decision to force the leadership to stop the war. He had to kill Japanese civilian people to do it. Look at those decisions. Those are staggering decisions, I think, by people of character who didn't want to make those decisions. I mean, they're good people. They knew what they were doing. But they, they believed this was the humane thing to do to stop this kind of calamity that's been in, imposed on the world by people of evil. I think that leadership will rise in this country again and will continue to rise. Why? Because of my faith in the American people. The people give rise to that leadership. General, I can just ask quickly, and then I want uh, Mr. Harvey and Mr. Pregent to, uh, to have, a, have a say. And also, I'll, I'll see if I can open it up for a question or two. Let's see if we have enough time. But, General, I want to ask, what are these sorts of decisions that the next administration might need to make, especially regarding, regarding Iran? I'm not, just talking about the, I'm not just talking about the Iran nuclear deal. I'm talking generally about, if we're talking about 36 years of the Iranians uh, of American leadership not responding to Iran, will this finally rise to the level, uh, rise to the level will American leaders will need to respond to it? Well, I think um, American leadership really matters. Mm -hmm. And we've seen the disaster of the absence of leadership in the Middle East region and how it has alienated you know, our friends and our frenemies in, in that part mm -hmm. of the world. And even statements by the Gulf cooperation countries, um, you know, in s some way lukewarm support for the nuclear deal uh, reflects a calculation on their part of this is going to go through and it doesn't do them any good to, you know, be outright in opposition to it publicly. Um, I think the next leader has to rebuild confidence in the region. Uh, 
build bilateral and multilateral relationships in the Middle East, North Africa. We have to deal with the Sino-Moscow uh, pact that seems to be emerging in the world and influencing that. And I don't think we want Tehran to be part of that Sino-Soviet pact. Um, but that, that seems to be where we're headed. I think we may need to think about uh, declaring a nuclear umbrella in the region and providing private uh, assurances for that uh, in order to forestall a movement in what I see as a, uh, a tendency towards consideration of, of nuclear proliferation by Ankara, Gulf countries, possibly even Cairo. Um, I think rebuilding confidence in that we say what we mean and we're going to back it up uh, is something that we need to do. And I think we need to be clear about who our enemies are and who our friends are and back up our friends. Uh, we've undermined too many of those in that part of the region, whether it's in Tel Aviv, in the Gulf, Cairo. So uh, I think there's a major uh, challenge there for the next administration <coughs> because it takes a long time to repair those relationships. Mike, do you want to? We're, ar we're already doing that. Uh, we're basically, you, you have the administration saying that this keeps Iran from a nuclear weapon while they assure the region that we'll provide you things to keep them from attacking you with one. Uh, those, that just doesn't make sense. You're already starting to, you go to your, the Gulf allies and tell them we'll help you build up your, your capabilities so that you will be able to uh, do enough to, to deal with this increasing Iranian threat that we're getting ready to give money back to, arms back to, and again, if they don't cheat, allow them to develop a nuclear weapon in 10 to 15 years. General, before, yeah, if you can. Well, just please. quickly, uh, you know, leadership turn, can turn this around very quickly because you start with what is the role of the United States in facing the global security challenges we have, and you articulate that to the American people, and you articulate that the world, the world at large, and I think just that alone begins to let our adversaries and our friends know that American leadership is back. That's number one, and then the, then then your actions, you know, will always speak louder than your rhetoric. And this is not rocket science. I mean, we have no comprehensive strategy to deal with radical Islam. And we've had two presidents who've been dealing with it since 9-11, and we still do not have a comprehensive strategy to do that. I mean, that is outrageous that we could find ourselves in 2015 with that. But that's the truth of it. And I'm not talking about some muscular military strategy. I'm talking about a comprehensive strategy to use the tools and what's available in the region to bring people together in a NATO-type alliance that we had to push back against another ideology called communism. We've never done it. And U.S. leadership would help organize it and get the people in the region and others who are interested in stability in the region involved in that. And we start to make some progress. The same thing with counter, countering the Iranians. And as opposed to dealing with uh, China and Russia, this doesn't have to be all about military muscle. But they have to have some conviction that you're willing to use some of this military muscle. They have to believe that there is an imperative here that you're going to do something, and, and what, what actions speak to that? Well, you don't abandon Libya after you decide to take the regime down, and, and one thing the, go, the one thing the president, the new president who's moderate Islamic, <coughs> takes over in Libya, the one thing he asked us to do, he said, listen, you've got to help me with the security problem. I need some people to come over here and train a security force 
so I can stabilize this thing. I've got all of these radicals running around with armed weapons that helped to take down Gaddafi. And what did we do? We stiffed them. Does that send a message? Of course it does. Ukrainians come over here. And they say, listen, we want to honor the accord that was made. We gave up on nuclear weapons. You were supposed to provide us with security. That was an accord. That was a treaty. Where, why aren't you honoring that? We, all, we don't want your soldiers on the ground. We don't want your airplanes. What do they ask for? They ask for weapons. We stiff them. Those are actions that speak far louder than words. And they don't involve Americans in any potential loss of life. These are only people who are asking for America to help them solve a problem they have themselves. And the same thing with the Free Syrian Army that came here in 2011, no help. Clinton, Petraeus, Dempsey, and Panetta all recommended the president in the summer of 2012 to help them. The president stiffs them and says no help. Those actions just reverberate around the region and beset us with considerably more problems as a result of it. So this isn't all that hard to do if you make up your mind of what the role is that America plays in the world. And I'm not suggesting that's a muscular military strategy. Far from it. But I am suggesting it is about leadership. I, in talking about leadership, my, the people I talk to across government that are involved in deputies meetings and the policy development, the message they, if you look at the president's strategy against ISIS, and I, just for one, I think we can counter ISIS and counter Iranian malign influence at the same time. You don't have to choose between the two. But the president's strategy, whatever you think about it, I think it's insufficient to the task and it doesn't identify and define the enemy and the threats and a process for really how to achieve effective results. You know, but even at that, if the president's going to have a strategy, he needs to take an interest in his strategy and make sure that it is resourced, that it is coordinated, that the right questions are asked, that it is executed effectively, that the interagency teams actually are doing what they're supposed to be doing, that they establish real metrics and measures instead of obfuscating. The frustration within DOD and state and Treasury and DEA and elsewhere about this is, is very high. And it's like they do not want real options. Let's just move along, okay? Let's just do enough. And that shows a lack of leadership and real interest about achieving effective results to impact the enemy, in this case, ISIS. But it's the president's own strategy that he's not making sure is executed effectively. It's going to rebound on us at some point, dramatically. It's already affecting the people in the region. Most of the things that have happened since the president announced a year ago is because of lack of response and lack of follow through in his own government. Thanks, Mr. Harvey. Let, let, let's, um, let's see if there are any questions. And uh, uh, you have the microphone. Mm -hmm. The gentleman, uh, Halal, if you can, uh, Halal, if you can introduce yourself, please. And, and, and we are, we probably will only have time for two questions. Let's okay. <coughs> Hello, Fratkin of uh, Director Center on Islam here at the Hudson Institute. Um, I wanted to ask um, a question. The question I have to ask follows from uh, Mr. Harvey's remark that we don't, we're, we don't, we're trying to understand these people um, as we understand ourselves, uh, that we're making a mistake there. And one part of that lack of understanding is a lack of imagination 
uh, for what uh, uh, the Quds Force, the Iranians in general, might want to accomplish. And I was wondering, we, you gave a very fine account of what they have done. I was wondering whether you could speak to what they might do in the future, uh, not in, in some general terms, but if specific ways, specific things you might anticipate from them, and especially uh, the issue of the missiles, which I believe you cited General Dempsey as saying uh, is a very, very se serious issue that has, frankly, not gotten very much attention. Well, for me, and, and Derek's got some specific knowledge of, of it, but the uh, I, I think the strategic objective of, of certainly of, of the United States dealing with Iranians' desire for, for hegemony would would be to use all the elements of power with our allies in the region for the sake of the people of Iran to eventually change the regime out. That you, and I'm not talking about military takeover, but that, that should be strategic objective. And then, then you work towards countering what they're doing with our allies in the region. And it's, and it's not just about the United States, and it's certainly not just about military power. It's using all the elements of, of power to do that with our allies in the region. And when it's, t when it's necessary to counterpunch, and, and I suggested a litany of times when it certainly was necessary uh, from 1983 through 2008, you, you have to do that. And, and it's not just necessary by yourself uh, to do that. But though that kind of thought process just has not been there. We're down at a tactical low level in dealing with a regime that has a comprehensive strategy and we lack an equivalent comprehensive uh, strategy to cope, cope with that reality. I think one thing the Iranians are going to do over the next five years, if you look at where they're investing their money, uh, cyber, ballistic missiles, anti-shipping capabilities, both land-based and sea-based, um, and then supporting a, a wide number of, of proxies in the region and being a steady, reliable partner for all of those proxies. Can I ask something about... I, I think what they're going to do is build up their capabilities, reinvigorate their economy, reinforce these efforts, okay? I think the, the past is going to really inform this, and they're going to use their coercive influence to try to do the three things that they want. They want to limit and help end the state of Israel long term. They want to make the United States not a factor in the region, and they want to undermine the coherence of the GCC and pick off those countries and get them into their orbit mm -hmm. one way or the other and empower Shia minorities uh, or majorities in the case of Bahrain and, and elsewhere in a way that is going to change the political dynamic in the Gulf. And that is where they're headed. Uh, they're going to focus on securing their interests in Syria and Lebanon, and they've already gone a long ways to establishing a client state in Baghdad. They're going to solidify that. They continue to undermine everything we're doing in Iraq to build up an ISF and a Ministry of Interior and capable security forces, and they're using all of their capabilities to directly undermine this independent capability and building countervailing forces that are aligned and most loyal to the Supreme Leader, not to the government in Baghdad. And that's what they're going to continue to do. Very quick, just one, one quick question. Um, you mentioned cyber. My understanding is that it's only recently that um, 
that the Iranians have gotten good at cyber. How is this accurate, and how did this happen? Uh, from my from my perspective, looking at it from both sides in government and outside of government, at least five to seven years, huh. and they've just announced help from, a major help from the Russians, help from China. If you go out to Silicon Valley, you'll see all kinds of of former Iranian entrepreneurs that came over and you know, the, when the Shah fell and others, the first and second generations. This is a, they've got brilliant intellectual capital. Yeah. And they've taken advantage of schooling around the world and in the United States. These I guys mean, are not inept. Cyber is capabilities exploding offense with advanced technology nations. That's great. You know, you can buy the capability in, in you, an educated nation like Iran certainly is, has the has the capability to grow their own in this in this field, and people are getting more aggressive with it. The United States has hands down the number one offensive capability in the world. I've been dealing with this issue on the Defense Policy Board for nine years, and make your eyes water what we can do. But nonetheless, other countries who are also advanced technology countries are are gradually acquiring a greater offensive capability. The Russians are clearly number two in the world. The Chinese are obviously the most prolific. The Iranians have a real, cap real capability. So does Israel, so does Britain and other countries. And this, this, this list is going to grow. It's, a, it's going to be a fabric of, of the geopolitical challenges that we're using. It's a huge enabler to acquire intelligence. It's a huge enabler to inquire intellectual property, and it's a huge offensive capability to shut down your opponent's capability, which is pretty dramatic in terms of what they can do. Thank you, gentlemen. Um, I'm sorry that we, we don't really have time for another question. Um, I wanted to thank you all for coming. I wanted to thank Hudson uh, and our C-SPAN audience. I especially wanted to thank uh, the panelists, General Keene, Derek Harvey, uh, Mike Prejean. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.